Emily, today we're talking about uh, mental health and theology. So I'm curious to hear from you about how you thought about mental health in your life and your work. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I think it's it's not something I've thought about a lot until the last few years and kind of coming to realize that I come from a fairly stoic families and cultures and realizing the ways in which we were not equipped um, or understand how to process our emotions. And I think then combined with faith, that means often that if I have faith, if I trust in God, then I don't need to experience uh, uncomfortable or quote negative emotions. And so really in the last few years, I've been thinking about how our faith does not negate our emotions and how we can actually bring all of our emotions to God as an important part of our relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's made a big difference for me in, in my own life. Mm-hmm. What about you? Yeah. You know, my first brush with mental health issues, I mean, the first one that I recall um, is landing in the therapist's office in college because I was super depressed, wrestling with um, the subconscious fact that I didn't want to become a physician like the rest of my family, but not knowing how that was really going to work itself out. So that was the first time I experienced it, but I really shelved it actually because of Well, theology. I mean, I was being formed in this environment where God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what that meant in the emotional life of the Christian, which it didn't really mean that much functionally. And I didn't really have a theology of Jesus' emotions and the fact that Jesus wept and celebrated and laughed and made jokes. I I think that affected me quite a bit. So. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation on mental health and theology. I am too. We interviewed Professor John Swinton, who is a professor in practical theology and pastoral care and a chair in divinity and religious studies at the University of Aberdeen, where I got my PhD. Hey. He is an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland. And before he became a theologian, he worked as a registered nurse, specializing in psychiatry and learning disabilities. Uh, In 2022, he was personally appointed as a chaplain to Queen Elizabeth in the United Kingdom, and he held one of 10 positions in Scotland for that that role. Uh, He has a lot of books and articles on disability and mental health, including Finding Jesus in the Storm, The Spiritual Lives of People with Mental Health Challenges, and Becoming Friends of Time, Disability, Timefulness, and Gentle Discipleship. We also spoke with Dr. Peace Amadi. Dr. Amadi is a professor, an author. She's a trauma-informed coach and a TV host who helps high-potential people heal and lead. She is the author of an IVP book called Why Do I Feel Like This? Understand Your Difficult Emotions and Find Grace to Move Through. The book hit number one on Amazon's new releases for mental health during its launch. She's also a professor of psychology, which includes social psychology, media psychology, child psychology, psychologies of trauma, religion, and law. And she's also a professor of leadership, both at Hope International University here in Southern California. Before we get to the episode, we want to tell you about Missio Alliance's national conference that is coming up in April. The theme is disruption. And so, you know, mental health might just be one way in which 
some of us uh, experienced disruption, but we've all experienced disruption in the last few years. And the question remains, how can we learn to see what the Spirit is doing in the church in our time? So you're invited to join Missio Alliance at their 2023 National Gathering in Chicago this April, and tickets are on sale now. You can learn more about this conference, see the speakers, and get registered at awakeningsgathering.com. And this is again from Missio Alliance, one of our partners. And full disclosure, I'm going to be there, and I'm one of the speakers at the conference. I'd love to meet you there. And uh, we're very grateful to Missio Alliance to be part of their network. Looking forward to what's to come. Enjoy today's conversation. So one of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests is how you describe to other people, you know, outside your field, what it is you do, whether it's like on a plane or at a dinner party. How would you describe what you do and maybe why you think it's important or what that's meant to you in your own life? Well, I probably, well, it depends who this person is, like, because I, I mean, I'm a practical theologian and, and so both of these terms are, are need a bit of explanation. But in short, I would say that I was a theologian that looks at the interface between culture and gospel and tries to ask the question, okay, so you have a theology, so what? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm very interested in the so what question. And so I guess I would be saying that that's right. So theology is important, but it, for me, it needs to look like something and to do something. The area that I ask these questions in is within the area of disability, human disability, and mental health. Everybody has to make a decision about what area of theology they'll focus on. How did you make the decision to focus on disability theology and practical theology? Well, my background is in, in nursing. So I worked as a mental health nurse for 16 years. And then I retrained and worked in the area of intellectual disability. And then I worked for a while as a community chaplain, mental health chaplain. So for most of my life, I've been hanging around with people who see the world differently. So when I ended up in academia, the, the natural thing to do was to reflect on my life or to reflect on the experiences that I've been going through. And so the fact that I ended up in disability is no surprise when you look at it within my life narrative. Which is good because it meant that I was able to bring questions to the table of theological discussion that perhaps other people didn't bring because I had a different formation, a different experience. So as a practical theologian, I'll come back to that question. But my task is to help people with disabilities, people with mental health challenges, people with dementia in particular. The questions that arise from their experience and the questions that they articulate themselves to bring that into conversation with the tradition and see what that looks like. As to why practical theology, I just really like it. From the first day I ever went to university, I really loved it. Which is strange because the first, my first lecture in practical theology was basically handy household hints for ministers, you know, hints and tips for ministers, which wasn't very exciting. But there was something about that, even then, the way that the, that gospel and culture came together, that I found exciting. And so I knew right away that was my space. So that's how I, that's how I got to this, this, the areas I'm looking at, and that's how it fell into practical theology. How about you, Dr. Amadi? If you were at a dinner party, how would you explain what you do? I like to answer that question in two parts. So first, I study trends at the intersection of mental health and faith. So I'm looking at things 
like the fact that over 20% of pastors acknowledge that they have their own mental health struggles or that 65% of church members would like their pastors to talk more about mental health and what's going on, you know, why, why that isn't happening. But Mm. overall, I like to, I help people of faith understand their inner life, their difficult emotions, their thoughts and beliefs, their habits and patterns, where that all comes from, how to deal with them, how to come out on the other side. So I'm in the work of understanding mental health and the newest discoveries, but translating that in a way that people of faith can dive into that too. Can you tell us what you're working on now in terms of research and academics? And why do you think what you're researching and working on is important to the world? Yeah, so right now I'm I'm actually working on my the proposal for my next book, which will be focused on let me see, how do I give give just enough away? But <laughs> but I'll say this. In my first book, how do I feel what 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 is the name of my first book? <laughs> Why do I feel like yes. this? Good yeah. Lord, it's early. Yeah. Yeah. One of the chapters was about our core beliefs and sort of unpacking the distinction between just everyday thoughts and our deep rooted beliefs. And that was a really, really popular chapter because a lot of people, students, church people, I mean, all the people that I interacted with didn't realize that there was a distinct difference and how helpful, how helpful it is to, to think about those differences. And so I, Um, I got the idea to really hone in on this idea of deep core beliefs and specifically the stories that we tell ourselves that we don't realize we're telling ourselves that sometimes match the story God has written for our lives, but oftentimes don't. And how that storytelling is actually one of the most powerful of the way we live our life and and the way our health out, outcomes, both physically and, and mentally. So I'm knee deep right now in research about the impact of thoughts, the impact of beliefs, how they truly change, how you truly change your thoughts, but more importantly, how you truly change your beliefs deep down at your core and what, you know, one story you tell yourself can do as far as the impact on your life and your health. That's what I'm looking at now. And I'm very, very excited to bring that to the table of people of faith and bring in that piece of, you know, we have a master storyteller, right? That we, that sets a standard of the type of stories we absolutely have the right to be telling ourselves and what would change about our lives. If we, if we did that, if we held up our stories, if first of all, we uncovered the stories we're telling ourselves and held that up to the story God tells about our lives. So that's what I'm working on right now. That sounds so helpful. I mean, among our academic audience, if you're listening today and you're a grad student and you've heard the phrase imposter syndrome, I have to just imagine the story that you've told yourself about who you are and what you can do. Yeah, piece, I'd look forward to that work and I know I could benefit from it for myself. Good. I'm going to hold you to that when I need to sell books. (laughs) 
thank you for that. It's been really cool to just see on the, the podcast, the different people that we talk to, a lot of their questions that they're looking at in their research and in the academic world are very much informed by their life experiences. I know that's true for Jeff and I, you know, and other people that we've talked to. So it's really cool to see how, how God does that and the kinds of experiences that we, that we have. And, and I think it just brings, you know, these really important life questions to a space where we can reflect on them deeply. Uh, so turning to, to mental health and mental health challenges specifically for this episode, I know that you spent a lot of time in your most recent book talking about the ways we describe our, our mental health and the different challenges. And so I'm, I'm wondering if we can first, you, you talk about, you know, biological, experiential and spiritual aspects of that. And I'm wondering if you can kind of break down those different ways in which we can think about our mental health and, and sort of maybe pros and cons of those approaches or, or why we need different aspects of those descriptions. I think the important thing is that we need, we need all of these descriptions. The question is which are more powerful within this culture. And very often it's the biomedical and neurological story, or even the pharmacological story, that overpowers other stories. And I think that's unhealthy. So my intention in, in that particular book was to adopt a phenomenological perspective. And by that, I mean, simply putting to one side the normal assumptions that you might have in relation to things like something like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or major depression. So these are very powerful and highly stigmatized diagnoses, which tend to overpower personal stories. And so you think you hear, you know, somebody tells you, tells you that they have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, so you think, oh, I know exactly what that is, and it's terrifying, it's all this, that. And listen to people, and, and you find it's something completely different, because their experience is very personal, full of meaning and full of purpose and love and all of these things. So the intention of that book was to help people who were living with serious mental health challenges to have a voice in the conversation. So it was a piece of qualitative research that raised people's stories so that they could be heard above the power of the other stories in that way. When you do that, my focus obviously was on people's faith lives. When you do that, you begin to understand these diagnostic criteria in completely different ways. Necessary, perhaps, for mental health professionals to do the job well, but it's not the end of the story. It's part of the story. And there are other descriptions of the same phenomenon that are really, really important. And I think from the perspective of the church, that's the space that we need to inhabit, listening to people's stories, listening to the interpersonal dynamics of that, listening to people's spiritual stories and working out what does this very difficult condition mean in terms of a person's relationship with God. So my general position would be we need all of these dimensions. We need to the church needs to collaborate with mental health professionals, but mental health professionals need to properly collaborate with the church so that we do have an ongoing conversation there within which fresh ways of healing emerge. That sounds so helpful because I am an ordained pastor and <laughs> I've read the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual here in the States, and the very clinical descriptions of what are referred to as mental health disorders. And I, I feel the temptation to reduce people yeah. to those lists of symptoms and then to give them a diagnosis. It, it can feel easy to do that. Can you give an example of how listening to a story complicates the, the simple bullet pointed list in a, a diagnostic? Yeah, I mean, the problem with the DSM is, is it, the description is there may be accurate, but they're very thin. 
some of that thick descriptions of things that we need. So take something like depression. So you've got the, the kind of standard categories within the DSM, which does outline certain aspects of what depression is for some people. But then you listen to somebody's story. So, for example, one person described the depression as like tumbling into a pit. And when you're at the bottom of that pit, you look up and sometimes you can see light, sometimes you can't see light, but the walls of the pit are covered with some kind of slippery substance. You, you can't climb out. You, you're just, you're just, so all you can do is sit there and languish in the darkness. And what was interesting about her was she, she said what she didn't want was just somebody to jump in and sit beside her. Now, sometimes we just say, we'll have to sit with people when they're going through depression, which is, you do. She wanted out of the pit. So she thought medication was a good thing. Uh, so you need people to jump in and also to have medication. So both of these things work complementary. But then what she said was, when I'm well, it's like I'm walking around the edge of the pit looking in, knowing that I could fall in there at any moment in time. And so wellness is kind of anxiety-filled. It's anxiety-filled because you just know that. <laughs> and so when you get that kind of thick description, and that you can see when somebody says something like, you know, I've got the Monday morning blues, I know what you feel like when you're depressed. You don't. But that way of thinking, when you listen to people's stories that way, you can see, get a deep understanding of what's going on, but you can also see how, in principle, the mental health professionals and the, ch and the church can come together to bring healing in that situation. You're hinting at one way in which we can think about our faith in relation to our mental health and the kinds of stories that we tell and the kind of story that we, we believe that we have. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the more harmful ways in which you hear people trying to integrate their faith and their mental health and some of the more productive ways that you would suggest instead? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, if, if you try to ascribe the person's suffering to the demonic or to some kind of sin, then what you end up doing is just keeping calls upon an already, somebody who's already going through deep, deep suffering. And it's the problem, it's the problem with theodicy, really. I have a thing about theodicy, because as soon as you try to explain suffering or evil, sometimes you make it worse. You know, why did I lose my child? They try to say, well, actually, you know, they're in the arms of Jesus, as if that's some kind of way of placating it. Why are you experiencing voices? Oh, well, it's obviously because it's the demonic. Here, let me exercise you. And you, you know, can you imagine what it must be like to be going through that and somebody is saying to you, you know, the devil is inside you. And the, the irony of that is that if that person was saying that to the other person, they say, oh, it's part of the illness. <laughs> it's, it's a very strange tension that one, one person in a powerful position can say something and the person in a weaker position says the same thing and gets a completely different response. Thanks for, for sharing that. And just to pause for a second, you mentioned theodicy. And theodicy is really a, a questions about God's goodness and power in the midst of suffering. And often our attempts to, to answer those questions uh, basically take us into the territory of Job and Job's friends who try to explain away Job's suffering and, as you suggest, make things worse. Peace, could you maybe give us some thoughts of your own about how we tend to problematically try to relate our faith and our mental health? Sure. So that's a big question. And I could say a lot of things, but I think the most troubling thing and the most persistent trend is that we just 
minimize our emotional life. We minimize our mental health and our mental health struggles in particular. And we do that by way of spiritual ideas. So, you know, in my book, in my work in general, and in, in the content I create on social media, I talk a lot about spiritual bypassing and spiritual gaslighting, mm-hmm. two things that we do to others and that we do to ourselves. And it's the idea of using spiritual ideas like, uh, and this, this I know is controversial. So I'm going to just say it. the idea that, you know, every single thing happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. I'm not, yeah, well, to not make this a whole theological discussion, I, I will say as a mental health professional, I've seen more harm come from that statement than good, particularly when you are dealing with someone who's experienced a trauma, a, a, a hardship, who's currently going through that or who remembers what it was like to go through that. It's not only not helpful, it's damaging and it, it tends to be the thing. And I know Christians don't like to talk about that. It tends to be the thing that turns people away from God than towards God. And so to answer your question, using spiritual ideas to minimize, dismiss, invalidate the, the, the very difficult things we go through, the traumas, the adversities, the challenges, is the biggest problem I see with people trying to merge their spirituality and faith with their mental health. And I say that the more helpful thing to do <coughs> is to <laughs> just the opposite, to validate how hard, how awful, how painful, how discouraging things are. And to admit that we don't know why we're in these situations, to admit that we don't know why God allowed this, we, to admit that we, we, don't, we don't know how we're going to get through something. I mean, it takes nothing from God to be in our human bodies and not know these things that that's part of the human experience There are things we're not going to know until the other side of heaven, you know, and until we get to meet God, that's just, I I don't, that's just the truth, at least for me, you know? And so being able to fully validate the, the depth of our experiences is a far more helpful and productive way to start when we're trying to come out on the other side of our pain and to somebody listening to someone to like a leader because I think leaders feel a lot of pressure to say the right things to people who are struggling which is fair you know we we want to make people feel better so I get that desire but sometimes the best thing to do is just say like I said I don't know why this happened but but I'm here for you you know and I, I don't know why it had to be this way, but I'm going to walk this out with you. I'm going to be here with you. That's what people need is connection and support and validation and seeking God together about a way forward, not having the right answers. There is no right answer to some of these traumas. Wow. I would love to, I know you said you didn't want to make this a whole theological thing and you're, and you're right. It's controversial, but we want to make it a theology thing. Just, I forgot who I was talking to. <laughs> and so, you know, I know your views are your own, but I'd love to give you a chance to tell us, you know, on the theology side, mm-hmm. who is this God? I mean, you're beginning to describe a God that does not intend for us the kinds of horrific things that happen to people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what do you wish your clients knew about this God? Yeah. Ooh, that's a big question. (laughs) All these questions are big questions. So I'll I'll say first to reiterate that I don't believe God is 
you know, a God that sits there and premeditates pain for his children. You know, I, I, I reference in my book, like, you know, this idea of like vision boards, like we put on a, we cut out magazine pictures and we put on the board, what we want for our lives, what we hope for our lives. Like to me, hearing things like everything happens for a reason sort of, you know, evokes this idea of God at his vision board, putting like pictures of like helicopter crashes. And I'm just like, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me, but I, I, as far as who God is, God is real. God is present. God is active. And God has decided at his will, whether we like it or not, to allow his creation to to do what they will <laughs> for themselves and to each other. And for reasons we may understand or not, or agree or not, when you allow broken, sinful people to have free will and to do things that can help each other and hurt each other, you get a big mess. You get really good things too, but you get a lot of mess. And I I think that's my question for God. Why did you give us free will? (laughs) You know, but not like, why did you make me go through this? I don't personally blame God my traumas. I understand that we live in the world that we live in amongst brokenness and sin with a God who said, you know, I'm going to allow people to do what they wish, choose me or not choose me, choose good or not choose good. And there's going to be fallout from that. And in the end, you know, I will, I mean, I'm speaking for God now, but I imagine him saying in the end, I will, you know, make things right. In the end, you know, there will be an, an total amount of justice but right now this is for whatever reason how the world's gonna work and there's gonna be good a lot of good that comes with that and there's gonna be a lot of bad that comes with that and in it all I'm here walking you through it well I really appreciate this description of the God uh, that we serve and the God that we're trying to understand in these situations John I'm wondering if you could talk about the importance of spirituality and a thick description even of spirituality as not just sort of being a a vague way in which we are trying to self-actualize, but what's the importance of Christian spirituality in general as opposed to something too broad? And how is that fitting into an experience like that? One of the problems with contemporary, I feel like generic understanding of spirituality is they are, they are exactly as you say it modes of self-actualization. So spirituality is a search from meaning and purpose and hope and value, but it's always my meaning and my purpose and my hope and value. And at the end of the day, the goal is to be happy. And you can actually see that in church communities as well, that faith becomes equal with happiness, which means that if you end up with a, a, a condition like depression, the first thing that people tend to say, and maybe say to yourself is, oh, I must, I'm, I'm being faithless. I must have done something wrong. I must have, uh, I'm not happy enough. If you reflect uh, so I think the difference between that kind of spirituality and a Christian spirituality is Christian spirituality is honest. It seems to me that one of the, let's listen to the, the stories of people with depression, that the people I spoke with, one of the major difficulties is disconnection. Feeling that you're no longer connected to yourself or, or other people or you're disconnected from God, which is a very profound thing when, when connection with God is, is perceived to be central to your faith. And so you can find yourself isolated. And by, because you feel in that way. 
we're going to sit, be honest. If we look at the, the Bible, for example, if you look at the Psalms of Lament, it's all about disconnection. It's all about darkness. It's all about places where you can't find God or God's not doing what, what you want to, to do. And even this is something like Psalm 88, which says, darkness is my only companion. What's interesting about that Psalm is that it's a Psalm to God. So the psalmist feels disconnected, but it's still a cry to God. So it's not like he's lost his faith. It's a, he's lost his sense of connection. And you see the same thing with Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not like Jesus has lost his faith. He's lost his sense of connection. And when you begin to look at that, these kinds of ways in which spirituality is articulated within Scripture, and then look at the experience of people with depression, you can begin to see that actually there's something to identify there. That even in the midst of that sense of disconnection, you can identify with Jesus because Jesus experienced that disconnection. It doesn't make it better, it doesn't fix it or mend it, but it means you no longer have to say, oh, it's because I've, I've lost my faith or something I've done wrong. There is a spirituality that captures that sense of lostness. So I think that's the difference. I think it's a, a spirituality, a Christian spirituality, it's just much thicker than, than many of the contemporary ways in which spirituality is articulated within society. So as Peace was discussing, um, if it's not everything happens for a reason, if that's not what we want to say, what is the reply from God's side or from the scripture? Sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. Because, you know, Jesus' cry from the cross didn't get a, a response. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Lord, God didn't speak, speak back and say, well, it's because of this. So it just hangs there. And that's really difficult. It's, it's not really difficult in the context of depression. I mean, as modern people, we have a tendency to turn mysteries into puzzles and then try to solve them. So the idea of living with a mystery or, or an unanswered question it's actually something that culturally we don't, we're really uncomfortable with. If you take that then into a mental health context, it becomes even more exacerbated in that way. But the reality is that sometimes God just doesn't answer in that way. And living with that is part of living, living out Christian spirituality. Mm. John, you really just described one of the real difficulties of being human in this world when, when sometimes God doesn't answer us. Peace, I'm wondering if we could turn to you about this question that we're asking on this season, what does it mean to be a human being? And what is it that you think we learn about being human by paying attention to our emotions, whether it's biologically, spiritually, physically, uh, what can we learn about ourselves? So many things. One of them, one of them being that we are more like God than we realize because I mean, how many times in the word do we get a sense of God's big emotions, right? And like big emotions, like whether it's zealous love or, you know, deep anger or righteous indignation or sadness and tears. I mean, we're literally just in every emotion we experience, just a reflection of our creator. So I think emotions are just one of those things that point to the fact that we were created in his image and likeness. I think we learn also that we are, that we're fragile, you know, and that we, even as people of faith, even as leaders of faith, are not exempt from things like depression and anxiety and, and trauma and all the different things that people experience in their emotional life. And so I think that understanding, that, that acknowledgement that we are 
fragile, that we all are, that we are not exempt from, you know, what we, what some may think is, you know, only the lot of non-believers. No, like it's, it's a very humbling message that we're, at the end of the day, we're just people, we're just humans. We feel we have emotions that are, that feel good. And we have emotions that feel hard and that's just what it is. And so I think there's a humility that makes sense to have, you know, when you realize we're all just, we're all just out here on this side, this side of heaven, trying to figure it out, trying to make it through the day, trying to make it through the year. And yeah, like I said, that should bring some humility and empathy for, for our fellow man. Well, I want to follow up on that as, as we listen to our big emotions, <laughs> uh, which I love that. I, I don't think I'd thought about our big emotions as a reflection of God's own image. That's, that's one I'll, I'll take away. Mm-hmm. From God is, a, is one of the most emotional people I know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my, that's my bent. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to think about our, get you to talk to us about our emotional life in relationship to, boy, I don't know whether to call it the other parts of us. I don't know how, in, in theology, that's one of the challenges to, is to thinking about what is a human being, but how do emotions relate to what the Bible calls our spirit or our mind or, you know, just physically our bodies? How do you, how do you want us to understand our emotions that way as humans? Hmm. I was just talking about this the other day. Yeah. So it, it, I subscribe to the idea that we are three part beings with a two part mind. And it's indicated in a couple of verses, one of them being, I think it's first Thessalonians 523 body, soul, and spirit. So, you know, when you map that out, you know, we're obviously physical and we're dwelling in a physical being We're at the core of us, we're spiritual. That's our nature. That's our identity, but sort of I'm thinking of like three circles in my head, the outer circle being our physical body, the inner circle being our spirit. But in that middle circle, we are soul. We are, we have a mind. Okay. We have emotions and we have a will. So we're thinkers. We are feelers and we are choosers making everyday decisions about our lives. And so you know, with, with, with that question, I just say, Hey, I, I think, I think what I, what I think when I, when I hear that question or when I went, not specifically that question, but when I hear people sort of downplay the idea of our emotions and how important they are and how God was with those, with giving us emotions and how they need to be attended to just like our minds and our bodies. I think about the fact that our, our soul in, encompasses equally those three things, the fact that we think, you know, our mind, the fact that we feel our emotions and the fact that we choose our will. And so when we, when I think about mental health and particularly mental health struggles and illnesses, I, I, I that picture is sort of where I like to start with when people don't understand how, how, you know, mental health struggles can be a thing. Well, it's because we are just as much emotion as we are mind and we're just a much we're just as much emotion and mind as we are body and as we are spirit so it's great and worthy of celebration that we are taking such good care of our spiritual selves but failing to take care failing to attend to our emotional selves can equally cause major havoc in our lives because we are all of these things Thanks for articulating that piece. It's fascinating to hear the tripartite view 
of what a human is and expressed vis-a-vis uh, psychology and emotions. So thank you so much for that. John, I want to turn to you. I um, want to ask you the same question. What is a human? And how do we bridge sometimes what we feel like is that chasm between the physical, biochemical, neurochemical, and the spiritual aspect of our experience? I guess if you look at the genesis of the creation, God creates everything. And he blows his, his ruach into everything. So the only, the only difference between human beings and, and creation or any other creature in creation is the fact that God talks to them and God loves them. So I guess what a human being is, is a creature that is loved by God and who God desires to communicate in a very particular way, and in a way that he doesn't with other, this as far as we're aware, with other creatures. So I think that's what marks out our, our humanness. And I think that way of thinking is quite protective. Because you know, if you take something like the image of God and the way in which it's interpreted down through history, each time it's interpreted, it's, it's, it reflects whatever is prominent within culture. And so at the moment, the image of God, the temptation is, is reason and rationality, which automatically excludes people with intellectual disabilities. Or you and I, as we get older, <laughs> as, we, as our brains begin to deteriorate, become less and less in the image of God. So if the image of God, if, if to be human is to be loved by God, then I think that just pushes in a, a, a good space within creation because it means we're responsible for creation as well. I think it has ecological dimensions, it has interrelational dimensions. It's, uh, that's the space I would want to come down with in that question. I hadn't thought about the ecological dimensions. That's really fascinating. And I, I, can, I think I can see the connection to the relational dimensions that you're referring to. But I'm wondering if you could spell that out a little bit more for us. I actually think, what, I mean, it's, it's a well-documented fact that Christian communities are good for your mental health. There's lots of, there's lots of research that's done on, on religion and health and, and, and whether it's good for you or not. A lot of it is methodologically questionable, but that's a, a fact. That if you're involved with a, a Christian community, then it will be protective in terms of depression, anxiety, and various other things. So there's something important about the community in that way. But there's another dimension as well in there, and that is to do with the way in which we hold one another's experiences. Now, one of the interesting things about the body of Christ, as Paul describes it, is its interconnectivity. Uh, We cannot be who we are without other people, and we're constantly dependent in that sense. And that dependency means that when one aspect of the of the body is is broken and struggling, another part of the body holds it for it. So one woman spoke to me about that. She said that, you know, she finds it really difficult to be in worship that's really happy. But she said, I don't want it not to be happy. I just want people to know that I can't be happy at this moment. Mm. And I want them to hold my sadness alongside of their, their happiness. And then that way, I can still be a part of it even though I don't feel uh, uh, the way that other people may do. I think that idea of of holding one another's faith, holding one another's emotions, holding one another's faith in the midst of the body of Christ is something that's very, very powerful. And I think that's the space that we need to work at because you need a lot of trust in there. I don't think we always have the necessary trust to enable us to actually actually be the body of Christ in, in the way that we could be. It strikes me, before we move on, that one of the challenges that grips the North American church is the deep alienation that so many of us feel from our church communities. And we had Jennifer Wortham from 
Harvard's Human Flourishing Project on to talk about some of the connection between faith communities and well-being and human flourishing. And um, I still think that there's a, a, a an important disconnect that's widening between, for example, young people of color and the church, especially the white evangelical church that doesn't recognize or isn't able to hold their sadness over yeah. the things that they experience in North America. And I'm wondering what you would say about that, frankly, endemic problem to the United States and perhaps around the world. Yeah, I'm not American, so it's, it's difficult for me to, to sure. comment that with any kind of authority because I don't have the authority. However, I think people need to realize that the significance of cultural trauma, that it's not just a matter of being nice to people in the present, history matters. And when it comes to people of colour in America, the history of people of colour in America, it matters to how you are just now. And if you can't acknowledge that and work together towards healing, then that festering wound is always going to be there. And it's not like it's not necessarily a, it's not necessarily a conscious thing. It just means that within the psyche of many African American people, American people, is the, the awareness, consciousness of this hurt and damage, which needs to be acknowledged. And once it's acknowledged, needs to be talked through, discussed, and only then can we move towards healing. So that's how I would think about it. And I think for white churches, you've got to see that. You've got to really be able to empathize and recognize the cultural dimensions of what's going on and the cultural impact of history on your day-to-day -day practice. Yeah, cultural healing, I think, would be an innovative venture for so many of our church spaces here. That's helpful. And I'm, I'm wondering, because you work in uh, disability and mental health, and you kind of identified those as people who see the world different from the normate perspective, what is it that we learn about being human from listening to people who see things differently, experience the world differently? Well, I think what we learn is that being human is a wide range of possibilities. Right. So, yes, to be human is to be loved. But within that, there are a variety of experiences that all come together to help us actualize that what it means to be a human being. And that raises a really interesting question. This is a question I'm fascinated about. What does it mean to, to love Jesus when you've forgotten who Jesus is? Mm. What can you learn from that? Well, one thing that you can learn is that perhaps love and loving God is more than words. And as a good old Presbyterian boy, everything comes through words. Like, so, you know, your salvation comes through words, preaching comes through words, everything through words. And then suddenly you're faced with uh, somebody with an intellectual disability, profound, who can never have words, so therefore can never articulate the things that we, we've been, the, the tradition says. And then this deterioration, or, or journeys maybe a better way, into dementia, which is liable to happen for all of us. What does that mean when you, when you and I no longer have words? And, you know, does God just forget about us and so on? So I think you can learn something about the fullness of God's love. And, and we can be drawn away from our cultural predilection with something like intellect and reason towards other ways of acknowledging and experiencing and, and being with, with God. So I think when we listen to that the wide range of human beings that are available to us, then we just get a thicker understanding of God's love. That's so wonderful. So that's the thicker understanding of God's love. Can you turn it around and talk about what we learn about being human when we listen to people who live with mental health challenges? Part of being human is to be vulnerable. 
and to be open to the possibility of suffering and brokenness. That, that's what we are. We're, we're, contingent, we're contingent beings who sometimes forget that we're contingent beings. Mm. And I guess without, without saying, I, mean, I don't mean that we have to frame all disability in terms of suffering or, or, or you know, conditions in terms of suffering. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that it just reminds us of our fragility. Because, you know, when it comes to something like mental health, all of us could be there at any moment in time. So it's a huge mistake if we, we don't recognise that. And so you, if we engage in the kind of cultural marginalisation of people, you probably end up culturally marginalising yourself. So it's all about self-interest. <laughs> but it's not, but you see what I'm saying. But yeah. I think that's what you learn. And then when that happens, you, you, you begin to live a life of gratitude. You begin to recognise that everything that's given to you is a gift anyway. And everything that's given to you in this world will move away as, as we get older and so on and so forth. And that's not a bad thing. Because as we change, as we, as we move, as we get older, as we have different experiences, they needn't be bad experiences. It can be wonderful experiences. Getting old can be a fantastic thing. Or it can be a horrible thing. But we need to change your mindset and recognise that the way we are is not necessarily the only way we're going to be. And when we shift and change, that's not necessarily a bad thing. So you, get, you begin to be grateful for the way things are. And that just changes your perspective. Peace, I'm wondering if we could turn to you for one last question. What advice might you have to help us pay attention to our emotions? Obviously, that's a big space, a big field, uh, but maybe just a couple tips to help us pay attention to our emotions in a good way. Sure, I would definitely start with first just acknowledging, understanding that emotions are our advocates. Like that's one of my favorite ways mm-hmm. to look at emotions. They are truly our advocates by design because emotions are messengers. They are telling us about ourselves. They are telling us something about our lives. A lot of what they're telling us is what we're missing, what we're in need of, what, where, where there's a gap in something that by design we need, be it connection, you know, be it community, be it a sense of meaning for our lives again. Those are, those are three examples that I use in the book of why someone may experience depression, disconnection, loneliness, a loss of meaning. Those aren't the only reasons why people fall into depression, but those are big reasons. And I would say underestimated reasons that people fall into depression. You hear a lot of talk about chemical imbalances, but those chemical imbalances from my research are actually, going back to that chicken and the egg question, those, those chemical imbalances are, are oftentimes a byproduct of what you're experiencing in your social and emotional life. So it's like we have, how do I say this? One of my favorite quotes that I've come across when I've been looking at depression research is that depression is a normal experience to our abnormal lives. So just this idea that, you know, we're, we're living, a lot of us are living very abnormal lives of the things that we're going through. And so being depressed is literally the most normal thing to experience because of the lives we're living. And so when you're living a life that is emotionally and psychologically stressing you out, then your brain reflects that. It's not like something 
spontaneously happens in the brain that you then experience depression. You're living your life and then your brain starts to mirror what your life is living. Where I was trying to go with what I was saying is that something like the experience of depression may be indicating, amongst other things, that we're experiencing disconnection, we're experiencing loneliness, we're experiencing a loss of meaning for our lives. Like it's just sort of dissipated. And when you understand that what you're experiencing, be it depression, be it anxiety, be it discouragement, is trying to tell you something about your life, trying to tell you that something is missing, you're then empowered, right? To get what you need so that you can move through this and get to the other side. And so I, there's, there's a long list of things that I could talk about when it comes to dealing with our emotions, but I, I, I've been in this field long enough and work with enough people that the most, I believe the most powerful thing I can tell you is to change your view of emotions, is to look at them as your friends, even the hard ones. In fact, especially the hard ones, because all they're doing is pointing to you what's missing in your life. And once you embrace that, then you now have a plan. Then you now have an idea, right? Of what you may need to fill your life with so that you can get back, you know, get to your healing. So that's my most practical step, first step. Change your idea, change your view of your emotions, good, bad, everything in between. In fact, I don't even believe in a bad emotion. I I believe in hard emotions. There are emotions that are hard to feel, but they're not bad. How can something that's pointing to your healing be bad? It's just a message. That's what I'll have to say. John, if we could turn to you for one last question. As you draw from the conversations that you've had with people and your own theological understanding and experiences, what does it look like for us to follow Jesus in the midst of our difficult emotions and our mental health challenges, whether we're experiencing them or want to encourage others who are experiencing them? Well, to be honest with you, in terms of your faith life, it looks the same as anybody else. And that's simply because people are people, which sounds like a really simplistic statement, but it's a really important statement. If you have schizophrenia, you're not a schizophrenic, you're a person and you're going through these experiences. If you have depression, you're not depressive, and so on and so forth. And I think that in relation to mental health, the most important thing that we can do is to give people back their names, right? To move beyond the assumptions of highly stigmatized diagnostic categories. Just start calling people James and Mary and Fred, because as soon as you do that, you're offering the gift of friendship. As soon as you use somebody's name in that, like, that way, you're giving them the gift of friendship. And the gift of friendship is the space where we learn what it means to be valued. When we learn how to, what it means to be valued at a temporal level, we, begin, we can begin to understand what it means to be valued at a divine level. So the church, I think, has a real obligation to reveal the love and friendship of God in the temporal level in order that people can, even in the midst of the difficulties, have a sense that there's something beyond that that they can get through and reach up to God. So I think it's simple. Well, we certainly hope that folks will find the beauty and the simplicity of what you just described.
You've been listening to Theology And, a podcast of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Thanks so much for listening. You can check us out on social media. And visit us on the web at theologyandpodcast.com. 